I have been uniquely positioned to be able to do this because I was silenced for so long in so many environments that I was in. It feels really good to like go to a room of people and be like, white supremacy is why you're acting like this. So the place that we start usually is with a vocabulary lesson. We go over things like white supremacy. We go over things like what racism is because a lot of people have this understanding that racism only operates in extreme. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Danielle Prescott is done being the token black girl. Prescott was one of the only black students in her high school in Greenwich, Connecticut. She was captain of the tennis team, attended Tufts and NYU, and went on to jobs at prestigious and influential fashion and beauty magazines, including Elle, InStyle, and BET, where she was style director. Prescott became a master of going along to get along. As she grew older, she began to understand that she was molding herself to fit in a world of white supremacy. Being a token black girl means not talking about race because it makes white people uncomfortable, something she knew she must never do. She had to be perfect, better than everyone else, which led to painful hair straightening in elementary school and developing an eating disorder when she hit puberty. The murder of George Floyd in 2020 was a turning point for Prescott, who is now 34. Following Floyd's killing by Minneapolis police, she posted a searing Instagram video that went viral in which she laid out the many ways that white colleagues and media figures had marginalized and ignored her and other African Americans, all while claiming to be anti-racist allies. Prescott has a new memoir, Token Black Girl, I began by asking her to explain the meaning of the title of her book. Sure, yeah. The title of my memoir is called Token Black Girl. And um, I wrote it because I spent a large part of my life feeling very tokenized. Um, I went to prep school in Connecticut, and then I went to NYU in New York City. And I, I spent 15 years of my career working in fashion magazines. And throughout my life, I've had so many instances where I was very visible to people. Um, I have been on the front cover of every brochure and on the website of every school I've ever attended. I have, you know, been essentially paraded out as um, proof that people have, quote unquote, diversity in their institutions, but it oftentimes did not allow me to like have a voice and all I was useful for, for a lot of people to make money or to um, invite other families into like school or hobbies that I would do um, was just existing as a black girl in a white space. Um, and there was also a lot of things that came along with that that affected my self-esteem. You know, if you're someone who is assigned a role and they really expect you to play that role and do that well, um, and that is just kind of the known agreement, either spoken or unspoken between you and someone else who has more power than you, you often feel 
kind of used. Um, and so I wanted to write this book to draw attention to that situation because it's very real for a lot of people. Um, if you don't mind my asking, how old are you now? I'm 34. So at what age did you become aware that this attention on you was for other reasons, let's say, um, you know, for reasons you had no control of how you looked, mm -hmm. your race. Mm -hmm. um, when did that first dawn on you? Um, I think I became aware of it very early, but I didn't really have um, vocabulary or language to express it. So um, for like the beginning of my school career, I guess, I was like famously mute. I did not speak at school from like preschool to third grade. Like I was just quiet because I just felt like if I did speak, everyone would look at me and stare at me and it just made me so nervous. So, um, you know, I just, I was, I was, I was a nervous wreck basically. <laughs> um, and so I, but I didn't know why, like, I didn't know what it was that was, making me feel so awkward. Um, and when I was in the fourth grade, um, that was the first time that a white person had identified me as black. And I didn't really know um, what that meant. Um, but it was- You didn't know what it meant that they were calling you black? I didn't know what being black meant. You know, I, I, I did not know it was different from what they were as a white person. Um, and so that I was nine years old. So that was like the first time that I had really become aware of race. You describe how I think it was kindergarten. You were asked to do a self portrait, the, um, you know, probably something every parent is familiar with when their kid comes home with their picture of themselves. And uh, when your mother asks you, uh, you know, at the whatever the school art show, how will I know it's yours? You reassured her, oh, you'll know. Yeah. What did your mother see at that art show? I was so confident that I was like, mom, of course, you'll know it's me. It looks just like me. Um, and this is kind of a, a running joke in my family. But my self portrait when I was five, but had blonde hair and blue eyes and it said Danielle P under it. Um, and so and, and, and was, had white skin. Oh yeah. Yeah. Had white skin, blonde hair, blue eyes. And actually I don't know if it had any skin. And actually I think that what it looked like was the paper was white and the person was not colored in. So I guess by default that is white, but I didn't, I didn't select the peach crayon, which was known as the flesh toned or skin tone crayon. I just didn't pick any crayon at all. So it was like an outline with hair and blue eyes, but just blank. And what does that tell you now about what you thought then, or maybe explain how that was for you an accurate depiction of who you were in a certain way? Yeah. When I started writing this book, I wanted to prove to myself that some of the things that happened to me were reflective of systemic issues and not necessarily an individual issue, 
right? So in, um, in reflecting on this incident in my life, I decided to look at how other children who attend, who other children of color who attend predominantly white schools deal with this problem. And what I found was it's actually a very present anxiety for children who are children of color in predominantly white schools um, or environments because they are not necessarily affirmed positively in their identity. And that is not necessarily reinforced by the institution that they have now become a part of. So the anxiety is, do I identify myself as an other in this you know, space, which doesn't necessarily feel safe? Or do I identify myself as like one with this group, which isn't necessarily accurate either because adults know that there is a difference but children don't really know that unless someone tells them that. Um, and for me, nobody really told me anything about race um, until they had to. Um, and I imagine that it's a struggle for a lot of parents. Like, do I have, you know, I, I did a book event this past weekend and my friend was like, I, I have a, a, a friend of mine who is a father and he was like, I have to have the talk with my daughter. And she was like thinking that he, he meant the sex talk. And he was like, no, I need to have the, you are black talk, you know? And that is um, a reality that many black parents have to face with their children. But it's like, what age do I do that at? Do I do that at five? Do I do that at 10? Do I do that at 16? Um, because the world will let the child know that the child is not white or whatever um, race they happen to be. Um, but it's it's not really like something that is available in literature, in movies, you know, like if you're going through puberty, I'm sure a lot of girls my age got the book, The Caring and Keeping of You. And this is like all about the body hair that's going to come, how you have to put on deodorant, how you have to, you know, deal with menstruation. But there was not any kind of rule book or thing to look at for understanding your place in the world if you were not a white person. So the talk in this case is a is kind of explicitly naming and identifying yourself as being black, as being different than that kindergarten self-portrait. Sure. Is that really at the, when did you get that talk or did you ever get that talk? Yes, I think I got that talk when I was in middle school. Um, because, you know, that's when kids start experimenting with doing naughty things like, in my case, you know, kids were like egging people's houses at Halloween. And so petty acts of vandalism or shoplifting or like whatever it is, like, you know, children push boundaries. Um, and my parents were very clear with me and said, do not do something because you don't have the same privileges your white friends have. And if you get into serious trouble, we will not be able to help you. And that was like, I, I, I was kind of shocked by it because they had not ever been so explicit with me before. Um, but 
it's true. I was essentially in an environment where people had a lot of privilege. And if something did happen, you know, legally with them, surely it could be rectified quietly, quickly, and resolved in a way that like, let the child continue to live their life. But that's not necessarily true for a black child that, you know, does something criminal. So when your parents explain this to you, you're saying middle school, so you're a teenager at that point. Mm -hmm. um, were you shocked? Was they, were they telling you something that you hadn't already figured out? Um, I hadn't necessarily figured it out because there was not, you know, a situation where there was disciplinary action taken against me. Um, and that wasn't applied to my friends. Of course, that later happened in high school, but I, 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 I was a little bit, I almost didn't believe them a little bit. Like, you know, I think it's very easy to pretend if you want to, um, that these things are not a present problem, that it might've been something that was a problem in the past, but it's not a problem any, anymore for me. I'm like, no, of course, I'm the same as my friends. Like everything is fine in my life. I don't need to have this knowledge because we are the same. And of course we were not, but children are very stubborn, I think, <laughs> or I was at least. So what happened in high school where you really experienced and saw the reality and wisdom of your parents kind of cautionary advice in middle school yeah so i was suspended from high school my junior year um they the the school administration said that i had threatened another student and that she was afraid of me so i could not come back to school and what was so interesting about the situation was like, it was it was something that I had told another so-called friend on AIM, which is definitely aging me, but we used to talk to each other on instant messenger <laughs> when you come home from school at night, because we did not, we were not allowed to text. Um, Texting used to cost money to send and receive text. So it was very much not something that you did. And so um, and so this got relayed back to the girl that I was talking about. And she said that she was afraid of me. Um, and so I, I was removed from school in my junior year, which is a very critical year for applying to colleges and cementing your future. Um, and, you know, of course, I had known that there were so many other people doing things that were way worse. But like, because I had said something inappropriate, it allowed the school to open a quote unquote investigation into me. And in said investigation, they discovered, you know, photos of us posing, of my friends and I posing with alcohol bottles, with boys. So they were like, look, this girl is a bad influence. Like she's doing bad things. Of course, I was not doing anything that any other student was not also engaged in. Like not a single thing that I was doing was like 
thought of by me. I was doing it alone, but it it boiled down to this girl is a problem. So we have to remove her. And how long were you suspended for? Um, at least two months. Yeah. I mean, that's how did you continue your education suspended for two months in your junior year? I know. Um, I went to public school for those two months and then my parents consulted a lawyer and I was let back into school. Um, and it was almost just like not even talked about. It was very bizarre. So let's talk about your family and the schools and communities that you grew up in. Tell us a little bit about your family. Sure. Um, my parents met in college and they had my sister and I, um, we are 21 months apart. Um, my parents are still married. They're moving to Texas. Actually, they're both native New Yorkers, but they're in the process of moving to Texas, which is great, um, for me because I live in New Orleans. So they're moving to Houston, which is much, much closer. It's only an hour plane ride. Um, and, we lived in Westchester. Um, my parents are big tennis players. So my father started teaching us to play tennis. We were two years old with a beach ball and a little kid racket. Um, and, you know, they chose to send us to the best schools that they could afford because they really believed that education would be the best investment for their family. And so that's what they did. And you attended uh, an all girls school up until, uh, lay out the chronology of your schools. There are Catholic schools, all girls schools, fill us in. Yes. Um, I went to a Catholic co-ed school until eighth grade. And then I went to an all girls school until my senior year. And then I graduated. I went to Tufts University in Medford, Massachusetts. And then I transferred to NYU in New York City. So the school that you were suspended from was mm -hmm. the Catholic all girls school. Yes. And you did ultimately return and graduate from that school. I did. Yes. What did that do to you, your own self-perception, being suspended, separated from your peers? Um, I think that I understood it was an injustice, but I didn't really know why. And as I've gotten older and I've met more black prep school students, I have discovered that like institutionally, this is such a common occurrence that there is like extreme disciplinary action, either expulsion or suspension taken out on these black students at these like in at these um, elite institutions. And it's it's that that is also why I feel so passionately about having written this book because I'm like, it is still happening. I mean, I graduated high school almost 20 years ago and it's still something that is a problem. Well, and yes, and something I've written a lot about is the school to prison pipeline. So yeah. it goes yeah. way beyond suspension and for often sure. for young black males. Mm -hmm. 
it lands them directly into prison or puts them on track to yeah. go to jail. Oh, yeah. And of course, opting out of the public school system is actually supposed to mitigate that a little bit. So a lot of Black parents choose to send their children to private school to avoid the school to prison pipeline because they feel like the public school system cannot properly address their child's needs. They were not getting as much individual attention, et cetera. And so it's like, even if you opt out of that, it still could find you. Did you see, let's say with your male peer, well, so you're in an all girls environment in high school. So you didn't have male, um, you know, young black male peers where this perhaps was sort of, um, you know, working out and with, with really terrible consequences. Um, yeah. You uh, mentioned at one point in your book, um, so your high school is in Greenwich, Connecticut, which, mm -hmm. um, you know, is a marquee zip code uh, in the is. country. Um, yeah. Talk about what that was like. This is one of the wealthiest and whitest communities in America. Yes, it is. Um, it... It definitely gave me like an odd complex because, you know, everyone was just so wealthy that like so many of my friends like flew on private jets. They had horses or ponies like we would they would have these obscene birthday parties like it was just it was like so it was I'm like, wow, I can't even believe, you know, what went down in my life. I'm like, this is insane. Um, and so it gave me like a complex for sure. Like I was like, I feel that I am disadvantaged because look at all the things that my friends can do. Um, so I, I did not really have a sense of myself as privileged. And that was really hard for me because I am privileged and so for me thinking about myself, I'm like, I am, I'm thinking of, I'm the underdog. Like, you know, I am, I am, I'm the one who has to be very scrappy. Um, but even by nature of being included in this community makes me extremely privileged. And that was something that I had to like come to terms with on my own as well. You write about how you saw blackness as a hurdle. Um, when did you begin seeing your own skin color as an obstacle to your success? Um, I think it definitely started when I was in school. Um, you know, there's something I write about in the book where I got into every college that I applied to because I was a very, very good student. And I was also an athlete. I, I did a lot. And my future was always on a freight train to college or university. Like that was the deal. It was not like I got to be 16 and people were like, oh, what do you think you're going to do with your life? It was like when I was 11, people were like, so which of these 12 schools are you going to pick to attend? And I'm like, uh, okay, weird thing for for someone who's in seventh grade to, to choose. Um, but I feel that ultimately it was, it was a confusing time because 
although I knew I was supposed to end up in college, a lot of people suggested that the only reason I would get into school or the only reason people would want me is because I was black. And people do this to adults as well. They say, you're only here because we needed a diversity hire, or you know why this girl got selected to be in the video, right? Because she's black or because she's Southeast Asian, because she's Asian. And so it erodes your sense of self to be like, well, even though I have great grades, even though I have great standardized test scores, even though I you know, am captain of the tennis team and on the yearbook and on the newspaper, like maybe those things don't matter. Maybe it's only my blackness that matters. And so that becomes something that you're like, well, I have to overcome this, which is essentially why I did not select an HBCU for college, because I was proving to my white community that I could do anything that they could do. If I would have selected an HBCU, it would have said, yes, I'm only going to the school because I am Black, and you can't even apply here. I mean, you could apply if you're a white person to an HBCU, but it's really uncommon. Um, and so I was like, well, I'm going to prove myself in this regard to make sure that like, you know, that I can compete. You mentioned tennis played a big role in your life. You yourself were captain of your high school tennis team. Um, so I have to ask, we're having this conversation less, you know, less than a month after the retirement and farewell tournament appearance at the U.S. Open of Serena Williams. Who did Serena Williams, what did she mean to you as a young African-American girl striving to be a tennis star? What did she represent to you? Um, I was crying <laughs> at Serena's last match. I, you know, it, it was mostly because I had been watching her for so many years. I was like, I don't even really understand professional tennis without this person's presence. Like it's crazy to me. Um, but it's funny because I was reflecting in this last year about what Serena Williams, what it was like to be a fan of hers early on. And let me tell you something, it was not comfortable. N like people did not say nice things about Serena Williams at all. They said horrible things all the time. They talked about her body, about her hair, about her, all of these things that don't have anything to do with how well she plays tennis, by the way. And it was extraordinarily stressful um, because it was like, I knew that I, I liked both Venus and Serena. I have one younger sister. Um, so it was very much like a, a miniature recreation of Venus and Serena, you know, when we would play tennis, because we're similarly the same age difference. And, um, you know, as, as an adult, I watch all these people clap and be like huge fans. And I'm like, you don't even understand. Like in 2000, no one was doing that. Like I, I was, I think I was 12 years old in 2000 and I was remembering, you know, just how awful people were to the Williams sisters. You know, they would, when, when they first um, came on the scene, they would wear their hair in cornrows with braids and they would get fined because sometimes the beads would fall onto the court. And it was this whole thing about, they have to change their hair because it's against the quote unquote rules of tennis. 
And people would be like, yeah, I don't know why they do that anyway. It's too extra. Well, they didn't use the word extra, but it was basically like they would say that it's, it's like, it's so pointless. Why would they do that? The understanding of that being a cultural statement, because this year, Serena actually recreated the hairstyle on her daughter. Um, and so that being like a cultural statement and something that cement them in blackness was swiftly rejected by tennis like it was not and even you know some of the commentary about how she plays matches now is still not great but I'm telling you in like the late 90s like early aughts it was horrible and it was really difficult to be a growing black child and hear that kind of vitriol to like see them get booed at Indian Wells. Like, I'm just like, I'm so confused. They're doing a good job. Why isn't this good enough? And it was never good enough. Were you trying to be Serena Williams? I was not trying to be Serena Williams because I did not want to practice that much. <laughs> <laughs> um you eventually moved towards from an early age you were drawn to the fashion industry mm -hmm. um talk about that what attracted you to that world um initially one thing that i did like about fashion was that i could relate to my peers on that level the the way that we chose to adorn ourselves was something that i could do on an equal playing field with them. So I'm like, we might not be the same, but we can have the same jeans. We can have Uggs. We can shop at Victoria's Secret. We can, you know, go to the mall and get the fragrances that we want. And so I felt like it was uh, a, a unifier between like me and my, my peers. And so I was always very attracted to that. And then I learned, I figured out that actually it was an area that I could become superior in. Like I could become the person people come to and they're like, I don't know if I should wear this. And they would trust me and they would believe, you know, me saying like, I like that or I don't like that. Um, and it made me feel really powerful. And I was like, I want more of that because in so many ways I felt very inferior and I felt that, you know, I wasn't respected. I wasn't really listened to, but I noticed that like fashion, it made me an authority. And so I just wanted to get more of that feeling. You talk about in a very candid and disarming way uh, what you describe as a deep self-hatred and sense of unworthiness um, that developed as a byproduct of my constant anxiety about my own inadequacy due to being black in a world that acknowledged and celebrated only whiteness. Mm -hmm. So your venture into the beauty industry um, was really kind of going to this kind of heart of darkness for yourself. This was mm. the place that you hated about yourself, and yet you were immersing yourself in it. So why did you go in that direction? Why not walk away and head in a different direction towards something where you didn't have this self-hatred? I feel like a lot of people are going to be shocked, but like most of the people who work at magazines feel like this like I don't think that it's full of that I don't think the industry like is full of a lot of healthy people with healthy self-images and a healthy way of um, evaluating themselves and others like I really feel like 
it's a lot of personal insecurities that get projected out and then absorbed by the public. Um, but speaking for myself, um, if fashion and beauty is a way to cover up all of that self-loathing. So if I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, when I do my makeup, I don't contour my face. Uh, contouring your face essentially means like making your jawline or your forehead or your nose look a little bit different than like it actually looks. But there are so many people who, who do that, like who can actually like change the appearance of their nose with makeup. And that makes you feel better about the nose you have because when you go out into the world, it looks different. And essentially that's what I was doing with clothing, shoes, accessories, and, and beauty. I was making myself into the version that I wanted to be rather than the version that I was. So talk about your trajectory, your journey through the fashion world and how it changed you and how you changed it. Um, I knew that I wanted to work in magazines for a long time, but I did not know there were other jobs at magazines besides writer. Like I didn't know that there was someone who selected images. I didn't know there was someone who picked the clothes out. I, I thought that there were only words and pictures in magazines, but I didn't know how it was kind of formed. So when I got my first internship, I got an internship in essentially the features department. And I found myself magnetized towards the fashion closet. Um, because they were always really busy. And I was the kind of intern who they would give me a task and I would do it right away. And now I realize as someone who like employs people that that was like busy work, that they were just like, oh my God, this girl keeps asking for stuff to do. Like I need to get her out of my hair. And I would just like do things really, really quickly because I thought that there was such a sense of urgency in that. Um, and so when I ended up working in the fashion closet, I got to see just how busy they were all the time. They always needed errands done. They always needed something organized. They just needed a lot of support. Um, and so I, I spent many years being an assistant and then I got my first editor job when I was at a company called Moda Operandi. And then I moved on to L to InStyle. And then my last job was at BET. I was the style director there for the last four and a half years. Do you feel like you were able to, and, and throughout this time, your own awareness, your own consciousness about racism, white supremacy, talk about how that was evolving, how you began to see white supremacy kind of baked into a lot of the things that was in the, you were seeing in the work that you were doing. Yeah. I think I naively got into the industry thinking like, oh, maybe there are not black women in these pages because they just don't know where to find them or they just don't know who they are. So me being here can help with that. And I, I had this job when I worked at InStyle to uh, do an under 100 page. It was like kind of the affordable page. And so we would pick a street style image to kind of use as emblematic of the trend and show here's how to get the outfit or the look that someone in this image is wearing with things under $100. And I would always, 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 always select only black women to be uh, the, the subject of the photos. 
And every single time my boss was like, you need to find a new image. You need to find a new image. You need to find a new image. And she would never say it's because they're black and we don't want them in the pages, but it was just like, oh, this outfit's not right. We don't like the composition of this. The background's too busy or like, we're not going to be able to find products like this. It was all kinds of excuses, everything but saying this person is black and we wouldn't do it. And that was an experiment for me in actually like not doing my job because, you know, as a writer, as, as an editor, as someone who takes notes, I know like if this person is saying this, like I should learn from that. And then the next time I present an image, it should be different. And I was like, so defiant about it. I was like, I'm going to just keep doing this every single time. Like, and that was really like my first kind of experiment in being a little bit more radical because I think I demonstrate in the book, like I always just defaulted to the status quo, like whatever some, and the status quo was white supremacy. So whatever somebody would like tell me to do or a way to behave, I would just simply do it. And in this case, I was like, no, <laughs> I won't. So when do you finally explicitly name it openly and confront what was going on with, you know, having images of black people rejected by editors with no explanation other than they didn't like the clothes or the, the styling. Um, when do you finally come out and confront that? For a long time within the fashion industry, there was only a few um, black editors like at our level. And it was almost like we were like a little secret society. We would talk about it amongst each other, but it wasn't really safe for us to talk about publicly, you know, you risk run the risk of becoming the quote unquote angry black woman. Um, people will invalidate your claims. They will say it's not true. They will say you are crazy or that you can't take a joke. Um, I mean, there's several people in the industry that have called me crazy for identifying racism as racism, identifying white supremacy as white supremacy. And I'm like, at this point, I'm fine with the crazy label because I know I am not. And I'm like, in this book, I have included several real world examples outside of my personal experience that demonstrate just how prevalent racism is. And um, it wasn't really like safe for you to like be that person in your office. I mean, even as late as um, Trayvon Martin's death, it was very much like we were a lot, we had Instagram. A lot of people were like, what should we do? Should we say anything? Should we not say anything? Um, cer certainly it was very, it was a very different landscape of media than when George Floyd Floyd died, you know? So still. talk about what was the impact of the murder of George Floyd on the world that you were working in, um, the world that you were uh, in some ways trying not to ruffle feathers, but in some ways also trying to flip over the table, um, which is a feat to do both at the same time. Yeah, I think you kind of get to a point where you you have to choose though you can't straddle the line of both. Like, oh, I'm not going to ruffle any feathers or I'm going to flip the table. You have to choose which one you're gonna be. And I think when George Floyd died or was killed, um, I think that it was impossible to ignore, you know, 
we were all home in lockdown and it was like, we finally have to address this. And it, again, it was not the first instance of police brutality that we have seen, not even in recent times. Like it's one of hundreds of examples. However, because we were stuck inside, it really had such an impact on everybody. Um, and the fashion industry in particular had a major problem because fashion likes to pretend like we don't have a racism problem. Like we are actually accepting of people's differences that we are, you know, kind of this born this way, Lady Gaga messaging. If you're weird, if you're artistic, if you're creative, you're welcome here. Um, but that's that's actually like just kind of this fantasy that is constructed. They, there's actually like so many real world instances of racism. And though like the fashion industry does not necessarily have anything to do with the criminal justice system and police brutality, the fashion industry's responsibility is to cement with imagery who we think of as beautiful, who we think of as worthy, who we give respect to, what we think of as sexy and desirable. And because those qualities become politicized, like you get more power, the more you align with what the industry says those things mean, um, then it is something that we do have a responsibility to address. So what happens after George Floyd? How does that change um, the world that you have been kind of brawling your way to the top of? Um, unfortunately, I don't think it has changed enough. Although I will say it has definitely made people a bit more cautious, but ultimately fashion and beauty are both industries of production and consumption and they don't wanna stop either. And they're not going to stop either even if there is like a social or political movement happening, like the ultimate goal is to keep selling product and to get consumers to keep wanting to buy product. And so now we are what, two years out. Um, I would say that there's not a ton of change um, in the industry, like at all. And they are very comfortable with that. Now there are certainly people who are working very hard to change things in the industry. I'm one of them. Um, there's several organizations that have sprouted up to support Black and people of color in the fashion industries, but it is still going to be a very long road. Talk about the work that you're doing now um, in addressing feminism, anti-racism, and trying to help others find their voice in that uh, in, in those realms. Yeah. So I have a business with a partner. Um, her name is Chrissy Rutherford. She's also a former fashion editor. She worked at Harper's Bazaar for many years and that's where we met. Um, I, we have a business called two black girls consulting Two BG consulting, and we coach fashion and beauty brands on their anti-racism journey. So we offer seminars and trainings for them. We oversee their communications, their social media, 
we help to facilitate introductions to Black creators and people of color um, to just like, expand their, their reach because so much of what happens, and a lot of people don't realize this, but like when people get jobs, they, they usually work with people they already know. So they are not, there's a reason why, you know, certain fashion or beauty brands do not have a front row that looks as diverse as we want to. It's because they don't actually know these people, uh, but they're not getting to know them in the same way. And I kind of talk about this, like in the book, noticing my, my shift from working in mainstream publications. So I worked at Condé Nast, Hearst, and Time Inc. And then I made the switch to working at BUT, which was only Black media. And so many, even though I had been working in the industry for years and had great relationships, so many of my invites disappeared. All of a sudden, I was not given interviews. I was like, what's happening? And it was simply because the wider industry did not see the Black audience as something they needed to cultivate and tend to. So they were like, oh, She's at BT. Great, cut off. <laughs> we'll just add one more seat for Vogue at this show. And you be, you become invisibilized. Yes, for sure. People who work in racial justice, social justice, but particularly around issues of racism, um, often talk about just feeling exhausted by having to take people's hand and start at square one and explain the racism all around them the racism in their own organization and lives. You've made this your career to, to start people at that square one, to reintroduce them to the world that they live in through different glasses. Where do you begin? You know, mm -hmm. when you show up, when 2BG Consulting shows up and says, let's begin at the beginning, what do you tell them? Well, I, I feel very lucky because I feel like I have been uniquely positioned to be able to do this because I was silenced for so long in so many environments that I was in. It feels really good to like go to a room of people and be like, white supremacy is why you're acting like this. So the place that we start usually is with a vocabulary lesson. We go over things like white supremacy we go over things like what racism is because a lot of people have this understanding that racism only operates in extremes that it's like you know people with tiki torches in charlottesville or the kkk burning crosses or people who just say i hate you know whatever race just because they exist but like the missing part is understanding that it is so interwoven into so many industries that we interact with as people every single day, which is why it is not accurate. She's like, oh, I don't want to get political. Okay. But it's not just political. It's in education. It's in healthcare. It's in housing. It's in our economic system. It's in the criminal justice system. And even if you are not personally involved in any of those things, like you can say, oh, well, I, I only work in, in beauty. So I only deal with lipstick, but even the way that lipstick would be tested on skin tones and would be marketed, all of that is affected by racism. So understanding that like that is just an ever present thing in our lives is so crucial to being able to get to the next step.
how does it feel to you to be where you are now, where you're addressing and naming the racism, explaining the world that you see in honest and direct terms from the girl who you were in these mm -hmm. all-white spaces drawing self-portraits of you as white? What does yeah. it feel like to be where you are now? <laughs> well, it feels really good that the book is out in the world and that people are really understanding it and liking it because I feel like I was very misunderstood for a long time. And I wanted to just, I wanted to explain, I guess. Um, so that feels amazing. <laughs> um, and it feels really different, you know, from, from the girl who was five years old and just had zero understanding but that's also why I wrote it to kind of normalize that experience a little bit more. Cause I didn't really feel like anyone could help or understand that. Like, and there is a world where, you know, people want to pretend that that insecurity or that inferiority complex doesn't exist. That like everyone is a black and proud child. And that's just like, it's not true, you know? Um, I, I've been able to connect with people who are, are not black on this factor alone. There's a lot of my friends who are Asian who changed their names to be able to fit in at school or friends who are Southeast Asian who were like, oh, I, I, I stopped eating my native foods because I was so embarrassed by the way that kids made fun of me, you know, at lunch. So trying to create a world where there are more spaces for acceptance is really important to me because like the more that we heal, the better people will be. Because I think that another thing that I really try to emphasize in the book is that like when you are a person of color in these environments and you go into survival mode, because you're very convinced that survival is only like it's assimilate or die, um, you aren't acting from like a very nice place. You aren't a very nice person. You are not developing into like a whole individual because you're so defensive. You're so like, like a, like a caged feral animal. You're like, Oh my God, I'm so nervous all the time. Um, and I don't want kids living like that. It's very stressful. <laughs> well, Danielle Prescott, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thanks for having me.